Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Hi, Sakaralites. Today we have Dr. Uma Nadu on the Sakara Life podcast. She's described as the world's first triple threat in the food as medicine space. She's a Harvard trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutritional specialist. Her specialty is nutritional psychiatry, and she focuses on the impact of food on mood and mental health. Dr. Uma is also the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and is also on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She recently released a new book, This Is Your Brain on Food, which focuses on how food impacts our mental health and can help treat a variety of health issues from ADHD to anxiety, depression, OCD, and more. Her work has been featured on the likes of Wall Street Journal, Goop, ABC News, and more. And we are so excited to have her join us today, and we hope you love the episode as much as we loved recording it. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Well, Dr. Uma, we are so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. And the first question that we like to ask our guests is, what is your mission? What do you feel like you were put here on earth to do. Thanks, Whitney and Danielle for for hosting me. I think that's a great question. I feel like what's evolved for me in my life that the most important thing for me to do is to help people with their mental well-being. And it came to me through what I studied, but it also became a greater meaning as I observed what was happening in the world. And that one of the things that I like individuals to feel better about is to feel empowered, that it's not just about medication. It's actually so many things that they can do to take control of their mental well-being. And that really lines up with how I feel ethically about mental health and what I feel I can do to help others. Mm, that's so powerful because I, I think typically... You know, I have family members with pretty severe mental disorders, and I think typically most people that I know that, that are suffering don't feel empowered. It's, it's the exact opposite. So that's a really profound mission. Thank you. I, and I agree with you. They, they don't feel empowered, especially when they're feeling that unwell. And usually the way that the allopathic medical system works, and there's nothing wrong with it, it serves a very important purpose is that the first line of defense is a medication. And I think that people just need to understand it is in, in acute illness, absolutely. That may be the first line, even 
you know, being in an emergency room may be part of it. But along with that, there's this holistic model of care that we can share, that people can do other things for themselves or can get help from, say, a family member or friend to remind them of those things when they're not well. Right. That's such a good point that you can treat the acute symptoms that, or the, the acute problem or help manage the symptoms acutely with different types of medications. But you're saying you also need to work on some of the inputs that could be a root cause of this chronic condition at the same time. Very well said, Whitney. It's, it's really about what I consider to be a holistic, integrated, and functional model of psychiatry. And what that means to me is that medical specialties in the United States, on the one hand, we're blessed because we're so highly specialized, but they also tend to be siloed. And I think that it's important for an individual to feel that there's multiple things. There's, you know, starting off with something that we all love on, on this call, you know, healthy, good nutrition, you know, healthy plant-rich foods, a diversity of foods. That's just one pillar. That's just one tenant of, of things that people can do. But meditation, mindfulness, appropriate sleep hygiene, hydration, movement and exercise, all of these things are just, and, and so many more, are just multiple ways that people can, can start at any point in their life to feel mentally more fortified and, and improve their mental well-being. Like there's studies on different types of yoga that improve anxiety now. And, you know, and, and studies about how, how you think and what you think affects your gut bacteria. So there's so much more that people can take into their own hands and feel empowered. And I think that we know some psychiatrists in New York City, very well-trained, well-renowned psychiatrists who they almost feel this pressure that they, they can't talk about nutrition as much or they can't they definitely can't tell people to take different types of supplements because they feel like they would be outcasted by the psychiatry society that it's so formal in its academia and very science-based and very focused on prescription medications that they don't feel like they can even go in this direction because they're scared of, of what the world of psychiatry would say about them, that perhaps they're a fraud or something like that. How have you been able to have the, the courage to go in this direction? What, what are your motivators and how do you kind of take on all of these people that might be saying you're a little out there? Sure. I think that's just one more great question. Well, it's interesting you ask that, Whitney, because Time will tell if I get ousted by my own community, but um, if that should happen, I feel that my book is really based on science. I personally reviewed 700 references and included 553 in the book, so I didn't say anything without there being evidence, and, and I'm not saying that I'm 100% correct. Let me, let me say that I say this with ultimate humility, because in medical care, in medicine, in science, and in nutrition science, things change all the time. So I say that based on how I interpreted the information, and I can also share that I have updated information since the book. So I'm not standing on a, on a um, soapbox saying, hey, you need to do this. And I, I would also like to say that, you know, in, in the environment that I've been studying and training, 
at the hospital that I studied, my chair is one of the individuals who decades ago began the studies on folate and methylfolate and the connection with depression. Others in my department may not call themselves nutritional psychiatrists, but have studied to make the free fatty acids, have done a lot of this work. I think what nutritional psychiatry does, similar to, to what Sakara Life does, is it brings, it brings it together for people in terms of a plan, in terms of pillars that they can use to feel better. I also think that some individuals feel that they, they don't know things to say in terms of nutrition because we don't learn that in medical school. So I had to take the extra step to go out and study that because it was something that I loved, loved and I, I grew up loving and knowing or wanting to learn more about. So that sometimes is a little bit of a gap in the education that us doctors get. And filling that out can feel empowering because then you can share something with a patient directly or someone you're having a conversation with. So, you know, I think that it also, in some ways, goes back to the roots of how I grow up and, and, and bring that holistic, integrated vision with me, growing up around Ayurvedic medicine and, and a Hindu family and that type of stuff. It's weird to me that we even have to ask that question. You know, I am a lover of science as well. I studied pre-med. I just finished a biochem course for fun. I admire and I, I am often seduced by, you know, the scientific method and what we learn through science. So I have the utmost respect for it. But that said, I think that... The idea that we have to ask, like, how, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where common sense or what I would assume is common sense that what you eat absolutely impacts your emotional, mental state? Like, how did we get to a place where that left the equation? Absolutely. I don't know myself. But recently, I've been reflecting on also, you know, a little bit more about what Whitney said about how this is going to uh, be managed in the world and accepted. And what I'm finding is that individuals are feeling quite empowered by the fact that they can read along and do different things almost today. But it also took me back to when I was in training at Harvard. And at that time, Herbert Benson, who, who's a physician who really has led, in my opinion, the movement on uh, mind-body medicine, and is now a, a very large part of our hospital at Mass General, called Benson Henry Institute. And the reason I say that is, you know, when he, he was sharing his ideas with the world, it was a smaller group of people that brought into mindfulness and yoga and that connection with the body. And it really, decades later, was one of the most important interventions that our staff and peers and patients needed during the early stages of COVID and it continues. So I sort of was compare it to where, where, where we have come to about nutrition. How we got there, I, I'm afraid to even think why we got to the point where it becomes a question. So you're right about that, Danielle. But I feel like maybe it's, you know, brands like yourselves, where you're creating this awareness of a, a plant-rich, whole foods diet, not con- being concerned about the calories, but really being concerned about what it is that you're eating and how you're eating it and where, and and putting it together in a beautiful model, really, you know, model of how we can live our lives is so important because it's not just the pill. It's not just, you know, a type of psychotherapy. It's everything put together. I think what I also like is that it shines light on the fact that nutrition is a huge part of this. 
and we should be doing something about it, whether it's, you know, obtaining a really delicious, healthy food kit or whether it's, it's talking with your doctor about it or, or whichever path you choose. Absolutely. And I think continuing on what Danielle was saying, it is amazing to me that for a lot of people, it's a stretch that your gut and your brain are related. In your book, This Is Your Brain on Food, you mention a patient or multiple patients who you have to explain this connection. And they're saying, what, these organs aren't even next to each other. How are they communicating? Can you give us a little overview on that gut-brain access, especially for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, it turns out that the gut and the brain are inextricably linked because the connection really begins in, in the embryo. As fetus is forming, there are these cells called, called neural, neural crest cells, and they migrate to different parts of the body and they form our organs. But all of that aside, the message is that these organs form from the same type of cell. They just separate out into different locations in the body. In addition to that, there's a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve, which physically, anatomically, biochemically, and physiologically connects the gut and the brain. So even though these organs are far apart, I call the vagus nerve a two-way superhighway because it's this interconnection, this bidirectional communicator between the gut and the brain. So when people understand that it's, it's connected that way. They start to put the pieces together. But then when they hear a few other things, such as serotonin is often called the happiness hormone, where more than 90% of the serotonin receptors are located in the gut. So then ask yourself the question, how can what you eat not affect how you feel if the receptors are right there? Another important, very important factor, especially for now, is that a very large component of our immunity is in the gut. And you can decide on any given day what you eat can be a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice. But it's going to start impacting the bugs in your gut and it's going to start impacting your immunity. You may not feel it immediately, but it will have that impact. And research has shown that your, the bugs in your gut can change within 24 hours. And for that reason, when I share it that way with, with individuals, when I work with, it makes much more sense to them. There's many more details, such as the foods you eat to feed the good bugs in your gut, etc. But that's, that's the basic connection and why it becomes so important to make sure that when that two-way superhighway is communicating, that it's communicating for your benefit, especially your mental health benefit. I think that like that makes a lot of sense in terms of like the gut actually connects to the brain. But can you speak to then how our food connects to mental health, maybe in a little bit more of like a zoomed in place? We talk about the microbiome here all the time, but I think hearing from your perspective, because you have this unique background and education and interest in the gut-brain connection and exactly how food impacts your brain. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. So let's take the example of a food that is really good for your gut, such as fiber. And fiber, again, I'm sure many people in your audience know this is not obtained through meat proteins or seafood and proteins, but it's obtained through, you know, fresh vegetables, through uh, fruit, beans, nuts, legumes, seeds, healthy whole grains. And they nourish the good bugs. And why do I use the bug, the name, uh, the word bugs? Because there are multiple different types of organisms that make up about 39 trillion in the gut. 
So I just use the word budget because it kind of covers all of them. So when you have something as simple as a, as a plant-rich meal, you, your bugs thrive. They then know or respond in a way to form appropriate and good substances for our body. Two of these substances are short-chain fatty acids and butyrates. Those substances get transmitted back and forth to the brain, and they work basically with the other hormones and neurotransmitters to up your mental well-being. So compared to eating a fast food meal where the ultra-processed foods, the processed foods, the unhealthy vegetable oils, the wrong type of fat in that meal do the opposite to the exact same bacteria. And in different conditions, which we break down in the book, different bacteria or groups of different bacteria are affected. And where the research showed and was able to name them, we've described that as well. Take, for example, a condition like PTSD. You know, it was found that through these mechanisms, the inclusion of rich antioxidants from blueberries actually impacted the gut microbiome in a way that reduced symptoms. So while that is simply said, what I would say is that these specifics are, you know, these studies actually looked at the type of bacteria, the colony, where they were located. And I would, you know, encourage your listeners to maybe look look deep into those points because in each of the disorders, we try to make those links for different studies. And I think the basic concept is that once you get, you activate the bugs in the gut to produce right substances, you are working against inflammation. So you are healing your gut instead of harming your gut. So you're working against things like leaky gut, which is otherwise intestinal permeability, you know, which for one thing doesn't necessarily only show up in mental health disorders, right? Because it's the gut and it affects the rest of our body as well. It could show up as a skin rash. It could show up as worsening acne. It could show up as inflammation in your joints. But, you know, we, what, what I looked at in my book is really the, the focus on mental health. So I, ho- I hope that provides a little bit more of what you're looking for. Yeah, it does. And like, I, I like, I like double clicking into this because I think oftentimes, or I know <laughs> we have so many clients that, that we work with that I think it's, it's a leap to think that what's on my plate is going to impact how I feel mentally. We can imagine that it's going to impact how I feel mentally in terms of, you know, if a meal leaves me bloated, I'm not going to, you know, be excited to get in that dress or whatever it is. And we can kind of make that leap, but the leap from my plate to anxiety or depression. And I like in your book, when you talk about, you know, you talk about each kind of nutrient and, and how studies have shown that that could impact these various mental disorders. And even something like, I think you said it was folate was connected to depression. So a lack of folate. So if you can imagine, like if you're not getting enough folate on your plate, then that, what I understand you saying is that, that, that in turn means that our, our metabolism and our the the bacteria in our gut can't produce those kind of secondary chemicals that then travel up the vagus nerve and impact your brain. That's obviously simplified version, but as I think about taking it from you know what's on my plate to what's in my brain, I think helping people really imagine that it's complicated, but it's not that complicated. Like I exactly, love, yeah, and I, and I like that you you mentioned double clicking on it, Daniel, because. 
what you're saying is so important. Sometimes people, when I, when I start with some basic, basic tenets or basic pillars of these are some healthy steps you can start today, right now in the moment. And I talk about a healthy green salad and people start to roll their eyes. And, you know, that's when I start to, to unpack the science a little bit, which is some of the recent studies that looked at this type of bacteria called Odoribacter. The, the study was looking at several different things. But the thing that spoke to me was that they found that the folate in leafy greens actually impacted these bacteria and were very, very positive in it. And I think that they even in the study broke it down to particular types of antioxidants. So it speaks to the fact that the science is now catching up with us. And when we put these facts together, I feel like what I've seen clinically and how I've seen people improve doing simple things like including your leafy greens as the base of a very large salad and adding those other nutrient-rich foods to it actually does help people. And to me, sometimes sharing one or two of those facts around the gut bacteria are helpful too. So that people don't feel you just saying, oh, you know, all doctors, all nutritionists say, eat a salad. There's much more meaning to it these days. And there are some themes throughout your book in terms of when you get into things that disrupt kind of how our gut and brain talk. So alcohol is one that you see often. Sugar is one that you see often. Processed foods is another. Gluten is another. Can you talk about how some of these ingredients disrupt that communication highway? Sure. So let's take processed vegetable oils. And part of the reason I mentioned this is because of the many things that happened during, during kind of lockdown and the early stages of the pandemic, some of my patients noticed an improvement in their symptoms. This really struck me, thinking that I know that others were struggling with more processed foods and, and, and that type of stuff. But here's how I, I sort of researched it a little bit more, and I realized that many of these individuals who were people who, who traveled immensely for work and were eating out more than others and had been, you know, packing some using the program to pack healthy foods and to, they actually should have been ordering your wonderful food, but, you know, doing, making these different steps and stages. But the difference is, and the reason that, that I accounted for an improvement in their symptoms, especially anxiety and stress, was that they were eating more meals at home. So they, they knew that they should be using, you know, avocado oil or extra virgin olive oil and, you know, just encouraging them to use healthier fats. And I think that it's, it's sort of underrepresented that that processed vegetable oils actually change. They not only are disruptors of the gut, they also change the omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acid ratio. And that becomes significantly important in setting up inflammation in the body and, of course, in the brain. So it becomes, you know, I, I agree with what you said, Daniel. We, we know about sugar. We are aware of it. There's always more we can learn about it. For example, there are 200 or so new names that, you know, have come out. We shouldn't say new, but they're out there that we don't recognize as sugar on food labels. And we know about, you know, anxiety. There's a significant amount of evidence about cutting back on gluten could actually improve symptoms. And, and I think the other thing I would mention is we talk about processed and also processed foods. There's also studies that link trans fat and eating trans fat rich foods with increased aggression and anger. So I think that's also important for people to know that these sort of negatives that come up in terms of emotional well-being with these ingredients. My hope is that people will take it to that deeper level and understand that it's so much more that we have to fend off. 
with the wrong ingredients. Some exciting news. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our upcoming virtual Sakara session this October 29th. You can join myself and Gabby Bernstein, who is a number one New York Times bestselling author and motivational speaker for an intimate conversation on standing in your feminine power during pregnancy, motherhood, and postpartum. The discussion will be held virtually from 2.30 to 3.30 Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, October 29th, and it is a free event. To register, please sign up via the link in the episode show notes, and we're asking that if you feel called to donate, to please donate to Every Mother Counts. This nonprofit is dedicated to serving the needs of pregnant and postpartum women all over the world. To learn more and donate, please visit everymothercounts.org. I hope that you'll be able to join this conversation, even if perhaps you're not a mother or experiencing pregnancy or postpartum. Everything that Gabby Bernstein has to say about life in general is incredibly inspiring and motivating, but especially when she speaks to what it meant to show up for herself during this time in her life. So we'll see you on October 29th. And now back to our chat with Dr. Uma Naidu. And now Danielle might kill me for asking you this, but what about coffee? What is your stance on coffee? <laughs> oh, actually, I read in your book, though, that it's good for libido, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, is. it is. So, you know, with coffee is one of the substances uh-huh. that, that can get demonized. And, and it actually has some really good health benefits. It's all about everything in moderation, everything in a sense of balance. Uh, I think that's something that I've heard you speak about as well. So with coffee, I say to individuals who are, who are struggling with anxiety, if you notice that it's driving your anxiety the wrong way, then you have to slowly cut back. But remember, it's the kind of substance, if you go from four cups to, to one cup, you're going to have caffeine withdrawal. So you've got to balance that up with almost titrating down. But if you enjoy it and you feel good with your morning cup of coffee, in, have it. If you notice a change in your symptoms, then speak to me about that or speak to your doctor about it. But also, you know, we'd recommend approximately 400 milligrams within a day. So that usually is, depending on the size of a cup, the type of coffee, about one to three cups. And try to have it early in the day so it doesn't disrupt your sleep. But if you are struggling with caffeine, I also like to point out to people that caffeine is is not hidden, but it's found in things you don't often think about. I mean, we know about sodas, we know about some drinks that, that caffeine may be in. But it's also in things like headache, over-the-counter headache medication. So if you are struggling with that, that sort of jitteriness that, that my patients with anxiety can sometimes get when they have coffee, then also beware of caffeine in other forms. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. fact that decaf coffee also has some caffeine in it. Yes, that's such a good point. But I love that you're, you're coaching your patients on body awareness and what we call it, Sakara body intelligence, that our bodies are constantly feeding us information and telling us what we need, what to do more of, what to do less of, but tuning into it is a practice and getting your body to a point where you're able to listen to those signals that you're putting the right inputs into your body, the right foods to send your brain the right signals when you're hungry, when you're full, what foods to be eating. And so I love these little tips that you're talking about of just becoming aware of how does coffee make me feel? 
how does one cup make me feel? How does four cups make me feel? If I had four cups, I would be very jittery, have tons of anxiety and be bouncing off the walls. But my husband, he can drink, he's Israeli, he can drink, you know, six cups and then be fine. And exactly, that's just it, right? And also, by the way, this is also another important point. It is about that body in charge. And I think that's a very empowering thing for people to do. To even something simple as a cup of coffee, assess how, you, how it makes you feel so you can be in the driver's seat of making that decision. You know, the, the book is really intended to be a guide because it's about food. So unless you are intolerant to have an allergy or say celiac disease, you can, you can try these things quite safely. You should always discuss with your doctor because there are simple things like grapefruit that are healthy food but can interact with medications. Just FYI, it's just something you want to check out because it can interact. But that being said, I really feel that individuals feel more power. They feel like, you know what, I, I can decide this. I can figure this out. And uh, pay attention to my emotions and when, when I'm drinking or when I'm, when I'm eating at any given point. Can you talk about how you define inflammation and then how that plays a role in making food choices and, and my, the health of my brain? Like what is, what is inflammation and how does food play a part in it? Sure. So substances that we've touched on like, you know, the, the processed, processed foods, ultra-processed foods, sugar, processed vegetable oils, different, depending on the source, could be glutens as well. What, what, these, what these substances can do is that they have ingredients in them. So, for example, on a food label, I'll say to people, if you're looking at a packaged food or you're buying something in the supermarket, you know, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a paragraph and these are words you can't pronounce it usually is a good suggestion to, to take a step back and wonder if you really should be purchasing it because it's usually something that's processed that is going to be a gut disruptor. It's, it's going to harm that balance in your gut of the bugs that are working for you and against you and cause dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is that imbalance that gets set up in the gut that one of, one of the things that ends up happening is inflammation. And the inflammation could, you know, start building up in your gut over time and lead to that similar situation of leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Now, once it starts disrupting your gut, it can also, because of that two-way communication through the vagus nerve, also reach your brain. And it's sort of the slow and steady burn that starts to happen. Some of the stuff that can impact you in a negative way are things like stress, because that, that also adds into how this inflammation gets set up. Let me give you an example of a client that I treated who was referred by a gastroenterologist for the first time in her life, young executive, first time in her life she was experiencing, experiencing an anxiety and a gastroenterologist sent her immediately for a prescription. And I spoke with her and during my initial evaluation, what I uncovered was that over an 18-month period, she had received this amazing promotion at work, was highly successful, but was no longer spending much time at home in her apartment and was traveling most of the time. So all of her meals were largely airport meals, fast foods, things on the go, and you know, eating out of the bar fridge at night when she arrived late at a hotel. So, so her gut was becoming disrupted and she was basically eating inflammatory foods. So the processed vegetables, the added sugars, all of these added up. And she ultimately presented with panic and anxiety. But as we unpacked the information 
and realized what had happened, she didn't need a medication. She was healthy enough and able to function that she didn't need a pull to help her get to work or function, but she was very much wanting to feel better. But by changing her diet to removing those inflammatory ingredients in her diet, learning to help her travel with food, you know, snacks that were healthier, make the right choices all the time, be mindful. Even though she was so highly successful, she'd lost a little bit of that mindfulness around her meals because she was so busy. And, and it's a great example of how the inflammation then presented as a, as a psychiatric symptom. But in fact, when you asked her, she had significant gut dysbiosis also caused by the inflammation. So she had bloating, she had discomfort. You know, she thought, why, you know, why can't I eat a healthy, healthy legumes anymore? I'm, I'm, I'm getting bloating. I'm feeling, but everything had been disrupted. So it was much more about how could she heal her gut to resume eating those foods. And I think that really brought home for me that, that connection with inflammation. It's funny that you just told a story because there's so many profound stories in your, in your book about patients that you've seen, are there any that really stick out to you as ones that just confirmed your belief in the power of food as medicine? I'm just thinking about, you know, all listeners out there that may be suffering from some kind of psychiatric disorder. And I imagine find so much inspiration and hope from your work and just knowing that, that nutrition is a therapy and is an option and can be one of the tools in your toolkit. So are there any kind of patient stories that stick out? I mean, there are so many in your book, but... You know, uh, I didn't think of it until this moment, Danielle, but, you know, in this moment, where really what speaks to me in answering that question is to share how I felt and, and how powerful it was to me very unexpectedly. You know, sometimes you immerse in your career and you're busy working and you're trying to, you're trying to do good and you hope you're doing good in the world and you don't realize what's going to happen. But when I was diagnosed with breast cancer very unexpectedly and whilst feeling quite healthy in my life otherwise. I shared how, you know, in a very, being blessed by having access to excellent medical care and being a physician in in a hospital system that could help me, I, I went from finding a lump to diagnosis and treatment within a very short time. Highly accelerated, excellent care and started chemotherapy more rapidly than my mind could catch up with my body. And there was very little time to process because things were going so fast. And in the morning of my very first treatment, I was quite anxious. I'm fortunate that I, that's not something I've struggled with in my life. And it was unusual for me to be so tentative. And I knew what it was coming from. I knew every single medication I was about to receive. I wasn't sure if they would be able to find a, find a vein for the IV. I, w- I was worried about so many things. And I stood in my kitchen and I was still in the state of shock because it had all happened so fast. And my electric kettle switched off and something went off in my head. And I thought, why, why am I feeling this way if what I talk to people about every single day is how to help this exact situation. And I suddenly moved from complete shock to what can I do? Like, like I was speaking to a patient, you know, what, what would I tell you to do? And I put myself in that role because it's very hard when you're, you're in that role yourself. And I immediately switched to continuing healthy habits that I've had, but used, for example, the foods that I talk about in the chapter on stress and anxiety and started incorporating that into my meals every single day, much more deliberately than I had been. 
And my doctors began to ask me, what are you doing that you're not developing these side effects? And how come you're not nauseous? I mean, we, we don't want you to be, but we're just curious because they'd see me walk in with my, you know, my little lunch tote and they'd ask me what I was, what I was eating. And so for me, it, it, it was really much more than walking the walk. It, it, something on a very emotional and spiritual level happened where I had to also respect what I was asking others to do. And the only reason there was a delay was I was, I was in shock. And when that kicked in, it was very powerful for me because although I had to go through a lot of rigorous treatment, I, I didn't have the kinds of side effects my doctors would have thought um, or expected. Wow. And I do think it was related to my food. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that story with us. It's moving and powerful. You know, when you feel it for yourself, it's so much more powerful than just you know, reading about it in a book or hearing other people's stories. And, but sometimes it takes something big in our lives to force us to make that change. And there are little signs along the way saying, make a change, make a change. That's right. But we're such creatures of habit that it's hard to form a new habit. Exactly. Until something really pushes us to do it. And I, I also think it's easier to help other people than it is to help ourselves. So true. So true. If you want my new saying, I, I always like to just chip in and say that, you know, I'm not perfect with my nutrition. I try all the time. And it's, it's really not about, you know, judgment. It's, it's trying to help people. And in that moment in my kitchen, you know, one of the things that occurred to me was that I had uh, not been meditating as much, that I, I hadn't been mm-hmm. really doing my mindful practice for months. I'd been so busy my clinical service had grown and I had this great opportunity. So some things had fallen off that, you know, must have contributed to my stress. So it was, you know, it was a good reminder. It was a wake-up call. And like you referred to, it was a wake-up call as well, that it, it was all of those things that I should be doing too. Yeah. I've really been on this kick lately. You know, we're ending the summer of 2020 right now as we're recording and it's been quite a year for everyone. And I've been really thinking a lot about self-care and how leading up to 2020, it was like self-care was this kind of trendy wellness idea of what one could do if you have the means. And I, my biggest hope for, for all of us in 2020 is that we realize that self-care is essential. It's, it's not a nice to have it can also be free, like breathing is, is free. And that I, I think oftentimes, especially women that I, that I talk to and myself included, we tend to put ourselves like not first. And so self-care can feel selfish and feel like we're carving out time for ourselves. How dare we? And so I, I hope that, that we all realize that it's actually the most selfless thing we can do because it allows us to show up. I've heard you say that a hundred times, but I feel like you have to hear it a hundred times to really sink in Yeah, and and to say, okay, I am going to take that time for myself. Mm -hmm. Because hearing it, you can be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. But then putting it into action. It's like, eat your greens. Yeah, yeah, I I do. Do you? (laughs) You know, I I love what you said about self-care not being selfish because Self-care is, is something we have to practice every single day all the time. Yeah. 
That really is a practice. I feel like this is a perfect time to ask you about light work. We'd love to give our listeners and ourselves a little homework or light work that you think would help each of us shine our lights a little brighter. I think that's such a, such a beautiful question, firstly. And I think what I would say, and I'll explain why, I would say spice it up. And I would say that because spices are very near and dear to me. Culturally, it's sort of something I grew up with. It's a part of how I cook and what defines me. But spices nutritionally, and not only do I see you're using it in your delicious food, but spices are calorie-free, salt-free, sugar-free, and pure. You know, if you get a good source of a spice, it can change so many things. But here's the, uh, here's the reason they're so important, because they have immense brain benefits. They have positive effects on your brain and your well-being. And for me, it closes the circle around, you know, spicing up your life for vibrance, for improved um, saffron has been linked to libido. You know, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper has been linked to anxiety and depression and hits the high notes in several conditions. So I would just say if it's, if it's, um, if it's something you'd like to try along with the plant-rich diet that, you know, that I, that I love the philosophies around, you know, not let's let's not let's step back from the calories and just eat healthy whole foods that are nutritious and delicious. And what I would add to that is just bump up your spices because that can add a whole other layer of flavor and and texture to your life that you will love. But it's also great for your brain. So you mentioned saffron. You mentioned turmeric. Any other favorite spices that we should try out? So, you know, if you like spicy foods, capsaicin also hits the high notes in terms of uh, vibrance, in terms of energy, in terms of mood. And a few others that I like are things that help immunity. And, you know, I talk about emotional immunity and, and basically it's linking the, our, our immunity in our body to also our emotional immunity. And things like garlic and ginger are great to add to, to just simple things that we're using every day. That pinch of black peppers, the purpurine that activates the curcumin and turmeric, that's just worth it on, on any day because, you know, if you're having a quarter teaspoon of turmeric, a pinch of black pepper, you're good to go, whether it's a soup or smoothie or, or whatever you use. But, you know, saffron um, was surprisingly strong in terms of depression, improving symptoms of depression. So those are some of my, my favorites. Those are so simple and so easy to include in your everyday meals and can make a big impact on your overall brain health. Exactly. And, and by the way, Mexican, dried Mexican oregano hit the high note on brain fog. So that was a good mm. one to know too. So, you know, I, I mean, there are many more in the book, but those are the ones that kind of always, I, I always keep on my fingertips. I love that also because at Sakara, we believe that the journey to creating your healthiest self should be fun and joyful and delicious. And those spices sound delicious. <laughs> I hope so. Absolutely. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, you shouldn't have to give up flavor because something yeah, is happening. Exactly. And, and, and the way it looks, right? Because, because I, I, I shared how much I love the food. It was also beautifully presented. And as a chef that, you know, we eat, we, we, I know that people eat with their eyes first. And so that was just very important too. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on the Sakar Life podcast today. We love everything that you've talked about. Your book was absolutely fascinating and just helps bring so much more 
science to what we talk about on a daily basis. So we love talking to you and sharing this knowledge and information with all of our listeners who I'm sure will just eat this up. <laughs> well, thank Good you, Whitney. Pun, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thank you, Whitney and Danielle. It was just such a pleasure. I really, really uh, love what all of you do, especially both of you leading the brand. And I had such a great conversation. Thank you thank so you. much. What a great episode with Dr. Uma. She is so sweet. I just loved interviewing her. Yeah, you could tell she was just so authentic and and really believed in the work. Yeah, one thing that kind of blew my mind for a second was when she was talking about the gut-brain connection, which, you know, we, we talk about this gut-brain access all the time. We talk about the vagus nerve all the time. But for some reason, when she was talking about it today, and she was talking about how the gut and the brain were formed from the same original cells in the womb and that you have all these neurons, these neural connections, these receptors, right, in your gut. It just, it hit me where we talk about joy is a nutrient and how food is supposed to make you feel good. And she mentioned all these receptors are in your gut for serotonin, for that feel-good chemical, right? That chemical that we think of as a brain chemical, but maybe it's really this body chemical and that it's so closely related to what we put into our bodies and how that can affect how we feel overall. It just, for some reason, it it hit me more today hearing it that way Mm -hmm. about how important it really is to be conscious and aware of what we're putting into our bodies because it really can have that big of an effect on how we feel, our mood, our mental health overall. Yeah, and I also think that that story about the brain and the gut coming from the same cells in the womb is such a lesson in we are we can think that our brain is separate and over here we can think that our heart is separate and over here we can think our digestive system but really we're interconnected and every cell is you know connected to every other cell in some way and so when we take care of one part of our body we're taking care of the whole and she even spoke to this idea of brain inflammation comes can often come from our food and our gut being inflamed so just remembering that Every decision we make for health is is whole body health. Yeah, I really loved your question asking about inflammation and really diving into that because it, it does seem that so much of our chronic stress on our body, our chronic troubles stem from that inflammation. And sometimes that word can seem so far out there. What is inflammation? And it's this thing that we can't, really see because it's inside our bodies, but it has such a huge effect. And so I loved that question and and learning a bit more about what inflammation really is in our bodies and why it's so important to be eating the foods to decrease that inflammation. I'm definitely going to try some more spices in my food this week. Yeah, definitely. She, She talks about in her book how one of the ways she lowered her anxiety for her chemo 
appointments was having um, turmeric tea. All right, Dee, go make yourself some turmeric tea <laughs> and I'll see you okay. back here for the next Sakara Life podcast. Sounds good. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs> <laughs>